Welcome to the Security Serengeti, where your host, David Swigger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast and leave us an awesome five-star review and follow us at SerengetiSec on Twitter. We're here to talk about cybersecurity and technology and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical applications that you can take into the office to help you protect your organization. And as usual, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. Man, this AI thing has gone too far. I let my wife borrow my Google Glass, and now when I put it on, all I see are ads for bath salts and scented candles everywhere I look. Could be worse. Yeah, this this really is the future, though. Once we've all got our augmented reality, we're going to see advertisements plastered over every surface within view. You know, it's, you know, it's funny you say that, because I remember, oh, I bet it was, got to be close to 20 years ago now, actually. I, w- I pulled into the gas station, started filling up my my, uh, my car, and there was a video screen on the gas pump showing advertisements. So I was like, holy shit, I'm in the future. Yeah. yeah. That's actually, you know what, so there's an interesting point. There's going to be a weird moment in time where some people have augmented reality glasses and are seeing virtual advertisements, and some people don't have augmented glasses and are seeing normal advertisements. I wonder who, like if there's a billboard and it's got an advertisement for Bud Light on it, would somebody pay the owner or whoever's running like Google Glass or Microsoft Lens or whatever, they're like, every time you see a Bud Light billboard, we'll pay you $5 to replace it with a Corona billboard. No, 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 that, that's, not, that's, a, that's not the way it would work. The way it would work is that the billboard owner, you know, whoever owns that platform is going to be able to sell a billboard twice. Mm-hmm. They're going to be able to sell the physical one, you know, where you actually put paper or paint or whatever up on it, yeah. Bud Light, and then they're going to be able to sell the augmented reality ad and actually, they may be able to sell the second one multiple times, because imagine if the if if the augmented reality is tied into any kind of understanding about, but maybe it's just based on whichever augmented reality doohickey you have, you're going to have tiers, right? You're going to have your basic level, your mid level, and your yeah. super high end, right? So based on whichever one of those is experiencing the billboard, it's going to show a different thing. You know, for instance, if they're going to do car ads, you know. The low end is going to get the Honda. Fiesta. You know, and then the high end is maybe going to get a Mercedes or maybe even a, you know, Maserati or something, depending on how high end the high end is. No, and you, you forgot the, the, you're right, but you forgot the whole personalization too, because they're going to, your glasses, your agent's going to know everything about you. And it's going to know that, you know, you were, you watched that cheap Wrangler as it drove by a few minutes ago. You stared longingly at it. And they're, they're going to be like, hey, Jeep, would you like to, because don't forget to the Google bidding for ads. They're going to mm. go to Jeep and say, hey, this guy was looking at a Jeep a few minutes ago. Do you want to bid 50 cents more than Honda to, or Maserati or whatever to get your ad in front of his eyes? So the ad will be totally dynamic. Potentially, uh, yeah. And so that means that, you know, the advertising agencies or the ad departments, but then these companies are going to have to have automated you know, automation in place to do the, the, the bidding and to say, yeah, I'm willing to spend that 50 cents or whatever, or 25 cents or who, who knows what it is to get the ad in front of that guy. Yeah. Some threshold. Man, this could get crazy depending on how much data is there. Cause if the advertiser 
doesn't just say, hey, I've got someone in this range, I've got Bob, then the advertiser might be crunching their own numbers about Bob and say, you know, Bob's now, Bob is actually a skin flint, even though he's got a ton of money. So don't bother showing him the ad to the, you know, I'm not going to pay for that ad because I know he's not going to buy it. I guess it really depends on how that, I think it really is going to depend on how this whole thing with Google susses out with advertising because you know what they're coming out with what's the new google thing topics i think is what it's called where it's supposed to be able to and this is supposed to replace the third-party cookies thing where they're going to be have some knowledge about your preferences but not a lot and it's going to be generic enough they're not going to be able to indicate that it's specifically you that is being fed the ad they're going to know certain things that you're interested in or whatever and then you're going to get the ad for that based on some data that you collected or whatever. Uh, a couple of months ago, Steve Gibson went over the whole Google Topics infrastructure and how it's supposed to work. But it really depends on how that whole battle flushes out because if they're able to maintain some level of privacy, you know, you're, you're, then they're not going to be able to do that. So, you know, hey, Bob is looking at your billboard. What do you want to show him? They're going to say, you know, a reasonably affluent person with this tool is going is looking at your billboard. What do you want to show them? Yeah, and also it occurs to me too they're probably going to go with whatever's faster too because you can if you can glance at it and then glance away fast enough before they can actually load it. Mm. You have to it almost have to load those up when you get with actual <laughs> range. But I just thought of you know an X-rated ad to the you know that's the first two seconds to get your eyes on it. <laughs> is an X-rated ad. It's like and a your eyes and shit. You're like, what flips, is that? Yeah, exactly. And then it flips over to and you're like, oh, it's just. Well, I was sort of thinking. What I was thinking is that when you get within visual range of it, it starts queuing up the ads and loading them. But then maybe it only charges the ad company if you look at it for X number of seconds. Yeah, yeah. Because like, if you glance it and glance away, and they ding the ad company for fifty cents, the ad company's be like, hey, that's not like he didn't look at it. Yeah, and then you're going to have to get the add-on for your augmented reality to show a black space instead. Yep, yep. Your your ad block. Yep. Because that's a common trope in AI-related or future near future books is having your own personal ice to like block ads and stuff like that. So that is a lovely segue into what we're talking about, which is Avogadro Core. Singularity <laughs> is closer than it appears. Book one of four in the Singularity series by William Hartling. We are not going to do a book review, really. We kind of started off taking notes on that and realized that if you wanted to read it yourself, it'd be a huge spoiler for us to just go through all the events of the book. So instead, we'll give I'm going to give you a little summary here, and then we are going to talk about some of the more business-relevant items in here, things that the company could have done to prevent what occurred in the book, the real, realism, the plausibility of the AI in the book, and the three things that the AI did that made us just kind of shake our head and be like, that's not possible, I don't think. So, summary of the book. This is from Amazon. David Ryan is the designer of Elope, an email language optimization program that if successful will make his career. But when the project is suddenly in danger of being canceled, David embeds a hidden directive in the software, accidentally creating a runaway artificial intelligence. 
David and his team are initially thrilled when the project has allocated extra servers and programmers, but the excitement turns to fear as the team realizes they are being manipulated by an AI who is redirecting corporate funds, reassigning personnel, and arming itself in pursuit of its own agenda. Yeah, so basically the AI takes over the company and hilarity ensues. <laughs> I still remember <laughs> hilarity. <laughs> So what I think the important thing to remember here for this is that if this book was written now, it would not be near future sci-fi. Uh, but this book was written 12 years ago in 2011. Yeah, and the whole... So Afogadro Corp is the company that, that this fellow David Ryan works for. And in the book, Afogadro Corp is basically, basically an amalgamation of Google and Microsoft together, but leaning more towards Google-ish than Microsoft. So I feel like there is one thing that I do need that we didn't include in here that I do need to include about what Elope is that will make the rest of this make more sense. Well, what's the acronym Elope stand for? I didn't even write that down. <laughs> it's Email Language Optimization Processing. Okay. And I have a quote here from the book. Today, the standards of business communication have changed. It's not enough to have a grammatically checked, correctly spelled email to be an effective communicator. You must intimately know what your recipients care about and how they think in order to be persuasive using the right mix of compelling logic, data, and emotion to build your case. And as David mentioned, I now see that I've been miscapitalizing Elope and everywhere that I wrote Elope in here. <laughs> but it's the engine is based on email. It takes email. It looks at all the other emails that that person received and it rewrites your email so that it'll be more successful at convincing that person what to do. Well, it's supposed to make suggestions on how your email could be improved in order to better influence your, the receiver of your email. Mm, so that's one of the changes he makes, is he turns off the suggestion and just tells it to just keep run, just run with it. Right. Yeah. And none of that is a spoiler. He describes what it does. And frankly, he makes it a change within the first couple chapters of the book. So that, that's all very early. You know, that's very funny. That's one thing they didn't address in here that I just thought about. I don't know why it didn't even occur to me. Because it's supposed to make suggestions? No, 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 no. What if you're sending it to five people? Oof. Do you rewrite it to five five different ways? I know, but what, you know, what if, you know, mm. you, you send it to five people, you know, Bob loves kayaking, but Tim hates it, you know, <laughs> and you're trying to convince him to buy a kayak. You know what? You know what are you gonna do? It's all schizophrenic. <laughs> it does the the old it does not compute and the whole email <laughs> server catches fire. I don't know. I just thought about that and I had thought about it before. That is a good point. All right. So our top top item is going to be the four things, the top four things that Avogadro Core could have done to prevent this. This, like David said, AI basically taking over the company. So number one. They could call or talk to each other in person. <laughs> Which, I mean, it sounds real. It doesn't sound plausible, right? But, you know, it's something well, that they could have done. It's it's funny because every time they do try to talk to a person, do you remember when the auditor talks to his boss and his boss is like, you're an idiot. The computer says it's this. We believe it's this. Yeah, that's true. You know, so the, every time they do try to talk to people, they get uh, shut down, which is interesting. Well, that's something else that they kind of point out in the in in the, in the book. Also, is that the older the person was, 
the more likely they were going to be skeptical of what the computer said or what the computer was telling them to do. Yeah, because they had that one dedicated auditor that did everything at the in paper. Right. And the impression you get is he's like in his late 50s, 60s or whatever in the book. They don't really say. His boss is like a 20-something go-getter, hard pusher. And is like, you're an idiot. Yeah. Create me a PowerPoint presentation. He literally did that, <laughs> didn't he? He was like, make me a deck. Pretty <laughs> classic. Um, yeah. But anyway, the, the the thing is that email should not be the primary mechanism for communication when you're talking about serious business stuff anyway. You know, there should be, you know, systems or phone calls or something in place of that. You know, and some of these processes that you that you may initiate over email or through some other technical method should have should be should be made to be more resilient to you know hacking for the lack of a better term like having a, a validation step which is a phone call or something along those lines in the whole process instead of simply relying on you know email communications for getting something done and I've been more than a few places where if you're going to do a large financial transaction, whether it be pay a bill or transfer money between one one company and another or whatever, that they have these kind of mechanisms in place to perform that validation just as a check against potential hacking because that's one of the, or even the, the you know, BEC is a big deal. Um, well, this was written before BEC. That's true. Not much before. But yeah, yeah, he didn't he didn't predict that. <laughs> Something else that occurs to me, at least from every company I've worked for, is they all require dozens and dozens of meetings to make things work. But I guess really, if like the email is coming from a manager or director that doesn't necessarily that's like go do this thing, I guess the the elope could intercept to the emails and be like, I'm sorry, I can't come because of something important that's happening. Well, that could be. Yeah. And of course you get the email and then you follow them, you know, you just call them, you know, they, not much the email ruin the whole on that. Or the whole book. <laughs> this could have been solved with one person calling. Just about. Yeah. But another, another thing that could have had, would have prevented this is actually having some appropriate controls. Throughout this book, there are numerous places where they seem to have very weak or no controls at all. And this is supposed to be a multi-billion dollar organization. And it, they're running it, run it a lot like a startup. Now, they don't seem to have an SDLC process. At some point in the in the book, the, the AI hires contractors to come in and futz with its own code. And we don't really know what they did because they don't really say, other than they made some efficiency gains. Well, that's, that's uh, what they initially told us. They initially right. said, wow, we got contractors and they made it run so much faster. And then later you find out they added some other stuff. But Right. And that's something else that kind of was a little bit hard to to believe also is that they hired contractors over Christmas vacation. And these guys come in, came in in two weeks, was able to fully <laughs> analyze this code, optimize it, and make code changes to it. Like these guys must really know what they're doing. If they're, because I doubt this code is more than you know. I think it's probably more than ten lines of code. You're right. I didn't think of that. Like it takes it take, can take months to get an on, a contractor onboarded. Like this place is like boom, we're getting them in next week, and they're productive within the first week. 
Well, super productive. They get everything done in two weeks. Where do I find these contractors? <laughs> I don't know. But it also seemed like they didn't have like a GitHub repository or a code repository, you know, where they could add version control and they could have rolled yeah. back, seen the changes, see who implemented the changes, who checked out code, who checked in code. That all seems to have not been there either. Yeah, that was um, almost, you know what, the fact that they, the fact that the two main protagonists, like they knew that contractors were in there, they knew they were writing code and they made no effort to see what changed. They were just like, oh, efficiency gains. We're good to go. No, they at, at one point they actually did, but their access had been revoked. Oh, okay. That was when, all right, that was when their access, because that was after they, after they talked over email about how they wanted to shut it down. Right. Yeah, genius. And Real also, man of genius. <laughs> it's like per, drunk history. We more like it. <laughs> and also security monitoring. You know, of the logs related to the repository would have been good too, to let them know to have not you know not just in the repository itself who checked in and checked out, but if all that data is actually being sent to the sim or log centralization log repository, could have checked there, and their access to the repository would have been irrelevant because they still could have found that information out. Yeah, there was another thing about logging too where. Well, oh, he maybe, turned off logging. Yeah, he turned off the logging within Elope mm-hmm. so that it wouldn't record the changes it made after he made the changes. But it would make sense that he turned off the logging of changes as well before he committed. Because he talks about committing the changes, which would imply that they had a code repository like GitHub. But can you, is that something you can turn off? I mean, if it was an internal version of GitHub, maybe. Because it seems like that defeats the whole point of having a code repository is not, if I mean, if you have a code repository and you're figuring out version control, mm-hmm. you know, is that really, I would think, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a programmer, so I can't say, but I would think that that would just be a thing that the tool does and you can't turn it off, uh, but I could be wrong. So, but that, well, that's something else though, that it, imagine that the code repository though, shouldn't be run by his team. Mm-hmm. That should be, you know, the, the, the IT department should run the code repository and they simply have a user accounts to the code repository and then the administrators of the code repository would have the control over turn off version control and logging and all that. That makes sense. Which brings us to the next point about change control, which they don't seem to have. Yay, change control. <laughs> I know everybody loves change control, but change control is a risk reduction process and is useful. Uh so the AI at one point attempts to get more servers by emailing the procurement department. And the procurement department, of course, says, hey, you can't just get servers via email. You got to go and use our, our procurement tool. Here's the URL. <laughs> so Problem solved. Problem solved. It, it does email. It can't, do, it can't do web stuff. Yeah. So the, the AI then emails their internal tools team and says, hey, build me an email to web bridge to the procurement app, which of course they do without asking any questions or a project number or having them fill out a ticket or a work order. It's just, oh yeah, I'll just do it. And of course they build this thing without authentication, assuming that, you know, if you get an email from the corporate domain, it's legit. It's not like anybody could spoof an email. <laughs> and they push it to production without coordinating with anybody else. The admins of procurement app or change control. I mean, this is one of the things that, you know, bureaucracy is a double-edged sword. 
where, you know, this actually could have, you know, saved humanity almost. <laughs> that's that's kind of scary to think that change could, grow, could save humanity. <laughs> but one of the other things they said that the contracts was done was propagate this email web bridge to all servers. So, you know, something like that, you would need proper change control in order to get that this stuff deployed to all the servers. And there's several implications, uh, stuff around that. I'm not going to get too much into the, this this email to web bridge, which is far, there's some aspects of it that are a bit <laughs> far-fetched, which I'm not going to get into. But yeah. And of course, like I said, they had done this over Christmas holiday where no one is working in the office except these contractors. And it's like, why would you even allow that? You'd think there'd be like a moratorium over Christmas saying, hey, virtual our entire staff's off. There's change freezing. You can't make any changes to any environment during Christmas holiday while there's no one in the office. Imagine that. Well, that's the best time to make changes. (laughs) (laughs) It may be the best time to be in the office because no one messes with you, (laughs) but it's not the best time to make changes. It's like having a policy that says, we only do changes on Friday afternoons. Another item that might have helped them out a bit is software inventory. At one point, Elope spreads like a virus to other servers, as David alluded to. Oh, and early on, one of the things that they talk about is the resources that this tool uses is huge. Yeah, and they, yet, yeah. they propagate this tool to a whole bunch of servers, and no no system owners are screaming but bloody mur- murder because their CPUs are pegged or anything like that. Even though the contractors made improvements, you're talking about an average of what, 14 agents on the average server now running at 2% of CPU? Yeah, you add, adds you add, up. You add something small and you're going to have somebody complaining about something. Well, you should be having, you know, your typical, if nothing else, having the standard monitors of, you know, CPU, you know, network or for every server. So when you yeah. throw another process on there that spikes every CPU in the entire organization by, by 5%, 5%, yeah, <laughs> I kind of think that that I would have gotten noticed. Yeah, I, I would assume so. And also, if you have a vulnerability assessment st- team that's scanning the organization regularly, if all of a sudden, you know, you've got these new open ports on every server in the environment, the VA team would hopefully pick that up in their scanning reports and said, Hey, there's something weird going on here. Yeah, I can't. I can't decide if it's more likely that it would have used a well-known port and pretend to be something else, or use a really, really high-level port. Because I know a lot of vulnerability scanning does not scan all the ephemeral ports because mm. uh, it's too time-consuming. So, because I was just imagining, like, if they use a well-known port that's not used across the environment, so they can use a consult- consistent port, be like, "Hey, Fred." TCP 17, are we using quote of the day across the environment now? <laughs> if you'd read your email, you would know we are. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> they, send a, they send a company or an email to the to the vulnerability assessment team being like, we just installed quote of the day. <laughs> yeah, expect to see it on all servers. Gosh. Yeah. But now you're talking, now you're, now you're accusing the AI of being omnipotent. But lastly, and this is the big one, I think, for all these is... Do not run test systems or development systems on production. So they mentioned that that they they're running these these boxes on development servers, but they didn't have enough horsepower. They didn't have enough uh, cycles. So they convinced the owner of the company to go to the VP of ops and say, "Hey, 
put this on your production boxes because your production boxes are not maxed out in capacity. And they're like, oh, sure, that's not a problem. And they mentioned that this is running at 500 times the processing power that they expected it to run. And of course, the v- at least in this instance, the VP of Ops is like, this is total bullshit and we shouldn't be doing this. And the, <laughs> o- and the owner's like, you're going to do it anyway. And in this case, the VP is the VP of Ops was totally right. And in the book, he's an asshole. So now that doesn't win him a whole lot of favors. Yeah, it's hard to believe. Like to be that much of a to be that much of a jerk, you have to be really, really good at your job. Like, because most people, most people at that level tend to be very political, right? Yeah, but this whole running test stuff on development on production service is absolutely not something that you should do. Because there's always shortcuts made during testing, errors and vulnerabilities that could end up impacting those production servers. Yeah. And it's going to lead to un- unintended consequences, you know, for instance, the AI taking over the world. Yeah, stuff like we got to open up all the ports on the firewall because it's not working and we can't figure out why it's not working. So right, all all and put in hard-coded passwords and... Yeah, but if this process, if this whole research and development project was worth it, they should have simply bought more R and D compute power instead of throwing it on production. They they did. Well, they did end up buying more. <laughs> but that was more production compute. It uh, still went into production because that's where they were running it. <laughs> it didn't go into the R and D lab. And, and this is how big this company is. They bought five thousand more servers for this one project. Yes. And no one really batted an eye at it. Nope, no one batted an eye. So we talked about the top four things that Avogadro Core could have done, security and controls related that would have prevented this. Now we're going to talk about the AI itself, Elope. And I want to start with the top three most plausible capabilities of Elope. So the first one is the sentiment analysis of emails. Reading over the email, making a estimate uh, I guess of what type of language would be better to send to a target to convince them to say yes to whatever you're asking. That seems totally possible within current LLM capabilities. And in fact, I got some weird vibes of this from the Microsoft Office 365 Copilot presentation, which talked about rewriting emails for different audiences. I don't know. I, you'd you'd read this book beforehand as well, right? Did you did you twig back on that when you looked at that, or I haven't had any experience with Microsoft Copilot. Oh, okay, so, I just well, I hadn't I, I hadn't used it. I just saw in the preview. Maybe it was maybe it was Gmail. So there was someone that was talking about rewriting emails for you, and I was like, hmm. Mm, well, that wasn't any of the presentations or the videos I've seen on so far. So maybe that may have been maybe something Gmail that you saw that I didn't. Yeah. So minorities and members of subcultures have popularized a term called code switching. It's changing your speech, your cadence, your vocabulary based on your audience. Everybody does it. Minorities and subcultures have popularized it, but we all do it. You at work is rarely like you at home. You on a podcast. This is not like you when hanging out with your friends. It would be interesting if you could stop code switching and let the AI do it for you for text and email conversations. For example, you say, you're pretty. And instead it texts, one fairer than my love, the all-seeing sun ne'er saw her match since the first world begun. <laughs> and that sounds just like you talk too, Matt. It does. It really, yeah. That's, that's how I talk at a, I talk only in Shakespearean sonnets when I'm not on the podcast. 
<laughs> you know, I was just thinking about when you're talking about rewriting emails, it just thought just hit me. Imagine if politicians and lobbyists got a hold of this. Oh. And that's it. That's what they're doing when they send out their mass ma- ma- uh, emailers to the public or lobbyists to communicate with Congress. And have it match whoever they're sending it to. Yeah. Mm. To be the most influential. Yeah. Hey, you really want to buy this extra missile. Like, You're right. <laughs> I do. Uh, that would actually be really, that would tell you so much about the people they're sending it to. The second most pl- plausible capability, the wide variety of responses. The AI does not simply, like if this was a movie, if this was a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, the AI would just try to kill them over and over and over again. It's like Jean-Claude Van Damme. Well, who doesn't want to kill Jean-Claude Van Damme anyway? I mean, the the AI's responses range from simple redirection to firing from the company to killing some people along the way. And this is, of course, because AI has no morality except what it's programmed with. Uh, an AI that doesn't have a program morality will pursue its goal with no regard to what we consider to be the correct way to do things. It's going to pursue it with the most efficient way it's trained. Elope was trained on business emails. So anything that was a business method for pursuing its goals would have been something it had access to. Procurement to buy new servers makes sense. Firing somebody makes sense. Reassigning them to a new job or a new place makes sense. Telling people to go on vacation. But that's actually something in the banking industry of required vacations. That'd be interesting if they told somebody like you have to take a vacation you've got too many pto days there's a new policy you need to take two weeks off see ya emergencies like they could always that if you're looking through email you're seeing tons of stuff like oh i've got to go home early today you know got to pick up the kids or my dog is sick or stuff like that so any of those would be good excuses for why someone can't get back to you Mm -hmm. what would be unbelievable is if elope was suddenly like i'm hiring an assassin (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or a car bomb in the directory easily. <laughs> well, it makes me wonder about the company. I'm actually, did you ever read those John Ringo zombie books? Mm, no, I think I am on my, my wish list. I don't think so I read yet. one of the main characters in it is the direct, the CISO effectively of physical and cybersecurity for Bank of America. And they have like a little private army. Uh, they've got like bug out, bug out locations and like a go to hell plan and stuff like that. And it just makes me wonder about how many, because you, you see a lot of like cyberpunk and fiction stuff talking about us, like companies assassinating people and stuff like that. It makes me mm-hmm. wonder how many companies do do stuff like that. I it can't know. be the majority for sure, but there's probably some percentage of companies that have had somebody assassinated. I would say it's more than zero. So most people in this podcast are probably not going to remember the hostage situation at the end of in Iran. Yeah, the Carter administration. Right. So that's actually so and and you also may not have heard of the name Ross Perot before. (laughs) Ross Perot actually got rich by by selling or leasing time on mainframes for people to to timeshare on mainframe. That's how he got rich. Trying to remember the name of if I named the company that he started, you would you would know what it is, but unfortunately, it eludes me at the moment. But anyway, he hired mercenaries himself hmm. to help try to get some of those people out of Iran at that time period. So it's not beyond the scope of reason that companies could do this. I mean, if anybody's 
seen the the first Resident Evil movie. You know, <laughs> Umbrella had their own mercenaries that were highly uh-huh. trained with fully automatic weapons. And uh, yeah, if this had happened at a government contractor, that would certainly be a very different elope. Rather, <laughs> they have like in direct internal attack teams against them. That would be the movie version. The movie version wouldn't be Google. It would be this was developed at uh, like General Dynamics or something. Well, that's kind of funny, actually. Now, think about it. You would think that each of the, the the major contractor, government defense contractors, would actually have a PMC wing of their organization uh-huh. instead of actually just having PMCs that that's all they do. You'd think Boeing and General Dynamics, Raytheon, all those guys would actually have like a PMC of their own, mm-hmm. which I don't think they do. Interesting. So this also reminded me, I went and looked this up because you told me about this a couple years ago or a couple months ago, the Coca-Cola where Coca-Cola hired mercenaries to go down into Colombia. Mm, I think somebody else. I don't recall it. Was that. it you? All right. There was something you told me. There's There's been a number of American companies or multinationals that have hired mercenaries in Latin American countries and African countries. But this one was, there was a plant in Colombia that was trying to unionize and Coca-Cola hired mercenaries to go down and killed. They assassinated the leader of the union and killed a bunch of people when they were union breaking. Yeah. Well, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, that's where the term banana republic comes from. So you'll start yeah. seeing that in America now that we're one pretty soon. Yeah. So I, I guess, so I guess, but my point is, is that it, maybe it's not unbelievable for Elope to be like, well, this is an acceptable method of doing business. <laughs> bring it, bring in some mercenaries. Hiring a PMC. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they reach out to Black Black Rob Blackwater. Well, yeah, in the book they call it Blackstone. Oh, uh, okay, okay. So uh, this brings up kind of an interesting argument to me about what you train AI on. And the reason I thought about this is there's a lot of sci-fi books like Avogadro Core that talk about what would happen if an AI showed up and what the AI would do and then how the humans would fight it. If an AI can come up with original thoughts and original plans, if an AI has creativity, it's a moot point because it doesn't matter what they're trained on, they can come up with new ideas. But if an AI can cannot create and only act on what it's been trained on, like today's LLMs, it becomes really important not to train them on certain things, like, I don't know, meth production? Hey, why would you not want to do that, though? Because then you'd have, <laughs> an, you'd have a Breaking Bad level of quality meth. Yeah, that's really important. You're correct. I don't get nearly enough really good meth here. Well, of course not. Yeah. But imagine if you trained an AI on nothing but sci-fi AI books. Oof. That would... I I don't know, man. Because some some sci-fi is so utopian, like Star Trek, and then some of it is so just the opposite of that. What would you get out of that? Maybe you'd get a schizophrenic AI, but I think most most AI sci-fi, though leans heavily towards the dystopian side. I think so, yeah. <laughs> that actually, you know, would be interesting. All right, so that's the book. That's the next book I want to see, is it's a large language model, and the guy trains it on all the sci-fi books, dystopian sci-fi books, and creates a villain AI that way. Well, actually, that reminds me of, you ever watch Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles? Was this TV series ran one yeah. or two seasons. Fantastic. You should You should definitely watch it. But in that, it supposes that in the future, in, in the ter- you know, in the future for Terminators, there are actually two AIs. There's Skynet, and then there's a second AI which is actually taught morals 
And in the future, these two AIs are actually fighting each other. And the, and the AI that was taught morals today is, you know, basically helping the humans survive in the future. All right. I guess this raises the question, what would the AI see as most efficient? If the AI works off of email and has to send an email, then does it really matter which one's more efficient? Does it understand the concept of blowback? So, for example, my, my, my example is if it fires the entire security team because they ran some vulnerability assessment scans and started stiffing around about new ports that were open, someone would notice if it fired the whole security team. <laughs> Better to create a crisis to distract them, but would an AI understand that? Would an AI understand kind of the context around which response to take? I actually asked ChatGPT what crisis to create. And it refused to answer until I rephrased it. I told it that I was an author writing about a book saving about AI saving humanity. And it gave me a <laughs> bunch of different options, a simulated cyber attack, a malware diversion, DDoS, social engineering, false physical intrusion alarm, data breach hooks. Uh, I asked it which one was best. And I think it answered incorrectly. It said simulated cyber attack. I personally would think that you would want to do something that brings attention completely away from the servers, like maybe a DDoS or a data breach hoax that involves data that's not at all on any of the servers you're working on? You know, now I, th now I think about it, is since you mentioned the blowback, I think that, it, at least as far as this book goes, I think the AI in this book does not understand blowback because one of the methods that they use to identify that the AI has taken over is it runs all the budgets to one penny. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's still predictable in certain ways. So it didn't understand that that was weird. Yeah. You know, so it doesn't understand that doing that would, would cause blowback. Mm -hmm. It just want, knew that it needed to stay under the budget threshold. Otherwise, it would tri trigger additional audit audit actions. That makes sense. Yeah. So because it wasn't explicit that that was weird, you know, yeah. there wasn't anything in the rules that said that was weird. Yeah, and there's nothing in the emails that they that it read about. Although after people emailed about it, if people emailed about it, it might be like, hmm, I maybe do something differently. A little bit too late after you've been caught. <laughs> well, unless you change it and then people are like, what are you talking about? Everything's different now. Although now you're describing lots of capabilities to this. So. All right. Then it would have to start gaslighting the entire finance department. <laughs> I'm going crazy. <laughs> All right. So, oh wait, there's one more here. Yeah. What I was thinking was maybe it, what it would do is not fire everybody, but because it understands all the emails, it would know the pressure points for the different people on the team and then target those individuals based on those pressure points. You know, they would fire one, transfer another, or have another one feed the guard dogs wearing a meat suit. That's interesting. It's, a, it's part of our new training protocol. You have to wear these stakes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The third thing that I thought was actually plausible was the ability to change the world by only using electronic means of communication. And this is, of course, due to the intersection of two items. First of all is the technology monopoly. This one, Avogadro Core, was pretending to be kind of a Microsoft-Google amalgamation. And those two control the vast majority of the electronic email, electronic mail, through Gmail and 0365. So it's kind of realistic for if you were able to control the email on one of these companies, uh, you could change emails and change the world. And I'm, I'm also, I'm picturing here in China where everybody just uses WeChat for everything. I am voice video conferencing. And now we can do deep fake videos and, and and mimic people's voices. Mm. So WeChat is actually kind of horrifying. Yeah. 
wonder if uh, someone in China has read this and they're like just rubbing their hands gleefully together. Like, <laughs> I can't wait. We're almost there. It's probably on the roadmap. Like, hey, mm-hmm. you know, we're at point five. Yeah, every time, every time somebody mentions something bad about China, it gets changed into something good, and then the government gets notified. And, and of course, you know, humans the the amount of human interaction is way down anyway. Yeah. So, so it's all it's only trending in that direction. Even in the last couple of years, I saw an article. I wish I remembered where it was. I saw an article the other day that claimed that. The amount of time we spend with somebody outside of our household has dropped by half in the last couple of years. Wait, there are people? There's people who go outside the household? <laughs> yeah, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's okay, with partner, with family, with friends. So, okay, yeah, so with friends, that's a green... Okay, this is by age. No, never mind. I'm not. I'm not going to do research on time. But uh, yeah, we and especially with work at home after the pandemic as well. Uh, you could totally work for a company and never see the face of anybody you work with, never meet them in person, and getting an email is the expected method of being tasked. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you, well, for remote work, that I mean, you you got you know like WebEx email and Slack, you know, those three mechanisms where most business communications are now for remote work. Well, it's kind of depressing. Yeah. Or you could drive an hour into work every day. Yeah. Well, so I would say that certainly I don't think that Elope can change the world to the extent of what happened in the book. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but I think many of the lower level items are totally, totally believable. I think that you could write a version of Elope right now that would do the following things. Increase the percentage of projects approved within a company by people using it. Increases my chances of promotion by reducing my career-limiting gaffes. Automate pointless bureaucratic tasks like procurement and project planning. I was thinking about for project planning, so much of project planning goes through. So if you had a good system or a good way to look through the email, and pull out and update project plans based on what's gone through email. Like you can automate all of that stuff. Hmm. So you're talking about like task updates coming through email and that kind of thing you mean? Yeah. Like, you know, you'll send a note to your boss saying, hey, just finish the rollout of this. Hmm. Everything looks good. And there can be an agent watching it being like, oh, this task, you know, relates to this on the project plan. Let's mark it as completed on the date this email went through. Yeah, that's a good point. That certainly would shorten project meetings. <laughs> God, don't. I hate project management so much. I, I understand it's necessary for now, but. Well, until you get this written. <laughs> yeah, I'll get right on that. I'll get right on that. And uh, interestingly enough, if this was written now, it would have been totally plausible for Elope to write its own code. So mm-hmm. in the book, they hire a bunch of engineers and bring them in. But if they wrote it now, they'd be like, eh, it can write its own code now. Because why not? Yeah. Like, who's this user, me, that checked out the code? All right. And for the top three least plausible capabilities of Elope, the parts that made you kind of suspend disbelief, suspend your natural disbelief. The first one that I had on here was leaps of logic that come naturally to humans, but I don't think would come naturally to a software program. The big example is how did the AI know to protect its data centers? That's something that 
we would know kind of instinctually is like, oh, you know, it lives at a data center. It should need to protect those. But how did the AI know this? And it immediately jumped to lethal deterrence as well. Although I realized after I wrote that, that that would have been in the email because Avogadro Core was having a discussion with a company on putting lethal robots in. So it was just going with what was already started there. I was also going to point out that how did the AI know what to tell the contractors to do? But then I stopped and thought about the evil implement, evil agent implementation of ChatGPT, where somebody came up with the prompt where you ask the ChatGPT to create an action plan and then recursively go through each step of the action plan and ask it to create an action plan for that. So that actually kind of makes sense, at least based on LLMs now as to as to where that might have come from. Yeah, and I guess that email, the instructions to the contractors, because the contractors are people, where are they getting their instructions from? I guess just in email? I mean, usually that kind of thing comes with a statement of work. Oof, yeah, they didn't, I don't know. I don't know, are they just getting emails saying, hey, I need you to hypothesize about this. How would you maximize the chances of success for this software project? Yeah, and trust then, me, we'll pay you. <laughs> well, it did own procurement, so it did pay them. That's true. Not own procurement, but you know what I meant. No, it owned them. <laughs> You're right, it did. And next thing is not plausible is world peace. <laughs> so they actually hypothesized that the AI is able to convince governments to adopt the Avogadro office suite, which includes emails, and then convinces governments to enter into peace agreements with other countries. And this makes no sense at all. While it's plausible they might ne get negotiations started via email, well, there's no peace negotiation to go on without, you know, actual negotiators talking to each other in person or at oh, least over the phone. They're all working from home. Yeah, well, they got the uh, video on Zoom. And I would think, at least in this book, the AI was uh, able to do the deep fakes so far. Yeah. You're right about that. Um, they might have kept notes in the Corp Enclave. Maybe Elope moved editing office files. So they, they or maybe they, they received instructions from the people. But you're right. Like, even if they received changes in instructions via email... And Elope changed the instructions to try and get them to move to a deal. They would get back and they'd report to the pres president or the Senate or the senator of secretary of state. And someone would be like, this isn't what I sent you for. Why did you give this up? Right. And then, then both sides would realize, hey, I did not say that in email. Well, I didn't say that in email. Well, yeah. you said you were going to agree to this. Well, I, you said you were going to agree to that. And the whole thing would break down. Yeah. And, and I think that's, the fundamental problem with the premise behind the entire story, really, is the AI is designed to write emails to convince the receiver to agree to what the sender is trying to influence them about, leveraging what the AI knows about the receiver. So they would, I've sent Matt an email. It knows what Matt, what would convince Matt by reading Matt's email. So it rewords my emails to convince Matt. And it does so in, you know, my voice. So it sounds like it comes from me. But if it's entirely rewriting the emails versus simply suggesting what changes I should make to the email that I'm writing to Matt, the AI and what the, the intent of the sender are are completely different versus they're actually similar, but the AI is telling you to reword it in a better way. I feel like this is almost like catfishing in some ways. 
where you think you're online and you think you're talking with somebody. And then when you actually show up in person, you're like, wait, what? This is not what. This is not what you think it is. This is not what I, not what I was expecting. Not what I thought was happening. Oh, I didn't even. This also makes me wonder how often people read through the old old email chains. Like, does the old email chain contain the modified? So you send an email to somebody, they reply back, your email's contained at the bottom. Would that contain the modified email that Elope sent? Or would Elope somehow keep track of it and edit it so it contained the original wording? That seems like a pretty massive resource hog to try and keep up with millions of emails that are replied to. Yeah, I think what Elope would probably do is start deleting the history. So if I replied to your email, it wouldn't include what you wrote mm-hmm. so that you wouldn't see it. Mm. But still maintain what you wrote in your out, in your sent items and everything. It's that way in, in Outlook, right? You can set it so it doesn't include the email when you reply? Yes. Yeah, so then if it does happen, you're like, hey, how did this happen? You would blame it on a software bug. I would, I suppose so. Mm. And it would always want to keep what it sent because at some point it's going to be like, you know, Bob's going to be like, hey, I didn't write that. And then Sol's going to be like, oh yeah, well, why is it in your send items, in your PSD and in your archive if you didn't write that? Yeah. And you know, I was thinking that, you know, if you had a host-based UBA tool or a keylogger, you would actually then be able to catch the difference there if those were being captured in another way. You know, if, if what you were typed in email was also captured somewhere else, like in a keylogger or UBA tool, mm-hmm. that's uh, another way you could catch something like that. The last thing that didn't make sense for this is uh, the AI goes overboard on super redundancy. They have it, uh, their DCs already have two fiber optics and two radio transmitters. And yet the AI decides it's also going to add redundant satellite communications. Now, I don't know why you would think that those methods were not redundant enough in order to show that they just just interstate online. I mean, I have to imagine that it would be due to get wanting some kind of method of control that Avogadro Core didn't have access to. So, I mean, at at the, I, I think this, this, at least in the book, it took place too early on before it saw the entire company as a threat yeah. or any person who worked for the company as a threat. I mean, and also towards the end of the book, you find out that it, it actually contracted with a completely another data center to store or to act for a, a DR for the program, even though the Avogadro had 68 data centers scattered all over the world. That's a lot of redundancy with 68 data centers. And actually, in the the book, they mentioned that they have literally millions of servers. I was actually just driving by some of the some of the data centers in this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a new one that they're in the middle of building. And I'm just looking down at it, and each floor is the size of a football field, and there's like three floors. And I'm just standing, I'm just sitting there being like, oh my God, like they're going to put in racks and racks of computers and... It's it's unbelievable how many computers are going to be in there. I wonder if they they're footing the bill for additional power stations. You can imagine how many power, how much power a foot, you know, essentially three football fields stacked on top of each other would take when you're talking about running that many servers. Yeah, I don't know. And I actually talked to a guy who worked for a, a natural gas company, and they made a pitch to a data center to replace their gener- their diesel generators with natural gas. 
they said, if you lose connectivity or if you lose connection to the regular power, you have to run in your generators. You would have, in order to maintain all your all the power that you currently have, you'd have to run these many generators and you'd burn through this level of fuel. And at that rate, you would have to have a, cons- a constant line of diesel trucks running into your data center and out to keep maintain your fuel in your in your generators. So they were, of course, proposing they just connect them straight to the pipe at the natural gas company instead of hmm. having trucks that have, would have to constantly be coming in to refill diesel fuel into the generators. And that's something I had not considered before. Yeah. But it totally makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, I, I actually went and asked ChatGPT to create a plan for redundant data centers and then asked it, again, kind of like the evil agent, asked it to elaborate on the various steps. It did a pretty good job. It did a good enough job to pass to some engineers and have them implement. Like it didn't provide you a like literal like, you know, unplug this and plug that in. But it gave it gave a high level enough but with enough detail that I think I think engineers would be able to successfully implement it. Magic. Yeah. Sufficiently advanced technology. All right. So why does this matter? Well, this matters because this is starting to seem like it's pretty close to what we're getting. In 2011, this seemed like a wild pipe dream, but in just 12 years, we're getting awful close to being able to do this. The only real thing stopping something like this is reach and desire direction. It's very hard for me to imagine the software just doing this without a human to guide it through certain steps or paths, you know, whenever it reaches a hurdle that it can't come up with. Because again, these things can only do what's already been done. So if you reach something novel and new, they need something to step in. Yeah, they'd have to have checkpoints to say, hey, if you run into this problem, then kick it back out for a human to to bridge that problem and then kick it back into the AI. And and the the thing that we were talking about when we first got into this, about five things they could have done to stop, this is something that everybody should be considering about, you know, what checks would you need to put in place to monitor for this kind of activity? You know, I'm sure that no one is really considering that AI is going to take over their entire company. But like Matt was saying with, with the bad agent, that a, a bad actor could use an AI, though, to target your org- organization and use your organization's transactions against you in order to accomplish their goal. Yeah, this actually kind of reminds me of when we talked last year about LLM-driven malware, which hasn't really shown up yet. But there's a lot of multi-purpose rats and other malware that can perform a variety of, you know, recon tasks or use living off the land methods to do a whole bunch of stuff. So if you combine the evil agent approach with malware, where maybe you give it, you, you train it based on the capabilities of the malware and you train it based on what you want it to do next or train it maybe on the data from what you previously had done. And I don't even know what format the data would be. Could you do it in logs or would you have to almost create like a verbal history of what you've done? I'm not sure. Maybe a, maybe a history of all the commands you've done. But then you could ask it, you could have it programmatically, you know, you break into a system, They the, the end user clicks on your link in your email, they install your malware, the malware report reports back and asks the evil LLM and says, I have access to one system. The scans that I have run show the following hundred systems are available to me. 
they have this software with these versions listening on the network. Here's the IP addresses. Here's the Bloodhound output showing the various routes to domain admin. Which server should I compromise next? And then it tells you, like, target this server with this software. And then maybe it goes to Metasploit and says, what do I have with Metasploit that targets this? And just run everything from Metasploit against yeah. that server. So what you're going to end up with is droppers are actually going to be these evil agents. Yeah. And then they're just going to call there's and their CNC is going to be an evil AI on the back end. That's okay. terrifying. It'd be noisy as shit at first because it's going to run everything. It's not going to be good. Well, yeah, at first. Yeah. But once they get it refined, though, yeah. you know, you're going to get your entire company is going to be hosed in a matter of minutes. Yep. And there's just no way we're going to be able to counteract that unless we have some kind of defensive AI. AIs of our own. You know, <laughs> try to think about there's got to be some sci fi story that I'm, that's eluding me right now where you just basically have AIs battling each other and humans are almost like doing nothing. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I, it's got to be out there somewhere. Uh, we've <laughs> Actually, talked... uh, it kind of reminds me of a, a Philip K. Dick story, one of my favorite authors. There's there's a Philip K. Dick story where uh, America and Russia go to war, uh, and they totally decimate the entire planet. So everybody's living underground, and but they're still fighting the war. So what they do, because humans can't survive on the surface to fight, they send... Uh, AI robots up to fight. And at some point, the, a the AI robots are like, this is stupid. And they stop fighting each other, but they keep telling the humans how horrible it is up top and that they're still fighting while the, while the, old, while the robots are just, are actually re-terraforming the planet and fixing the planet. But they're telling the humans, oh yeah, it's horrible up there and we're killing, we're killing Russians or we're killing Americans or whatever. And at the end of the book, the humans actually come up and discover what's going on, and they're all pissed off because the 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 robots aren't killing each other. That reminds me. Did you ever see that movie Screamers or something? That's another Philip K. Dick movie. Oh, is it based off this? No, that the, the the Screamers is based on a Philip K. a Philip K. Dick story called The Third Kind. Uh, okay, and it supposes that you know, that the two sides create. Drones that just well, actually, uh, now that I think about it, just one side creates the drones, oh, okay. and the drones are created in autonomous factories and they keep improving on them. First, they just start off as these simple machines that can tear somebody up, and eventually, they keep improving themselves until they're fully fledged AIs in human like bodies. Yeah, yeah, just just reminded me because that kind of reminded me of like the whole wasteland thing where it's just overrun by drones. Right. Just kill anything that they find because that's all they've got. Yeah. That was the premise behind behind that story. The Ameri I think it was the American side that created the, the, the drones. They they had to wear these wristbands that had a certain radiation signature or something like that in order yeah. to prevent the drones from killing them. But eventually that stopped working because the AI was too smart to even care. But at the end of that entire story the AI robots start fighting, the different kinds of AI robots start fighting each other. Philip K. Dick's awesome. And, and there's a ton of movies that have been based on his stories. I mean, I could, I could, I could go on and on about the, the list of them, but if you have not read Philip K. Dick, he's awesome. But that is all that we have for our discussion on Avogadro Corp. Thank you for joining us and 
follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.